Welcome to this year's Pre-Pesach Share, dedicated to the memory of Katharina de Widder, Chaya Pearl, Esther, Bas Menachem Mendel, Aleha Sholem, whose yard site was on the 27th of Adar. May her neshama have an aliyah, and may we all be zechot si tchias hamesim. In this Share, I want to focus on the story of what is possibly the most famous Seder in all of Jewish history. The Seder took place in Bnei Brak, and five of the most famous Talmudic sages participated. What's amazing is that this incredible Seder has become the foundation for the way we look at Seder night. It is the ultimate Seder, the pinnacle of Sipur Yetzias Mitzrayim, of retelling the narrative of our liberation from Egypt and the formation of the Jewish nation by God so that we became his chosen people. The Exodus story is considered by the Jewish people to be our nation's foundation narrative. The actual story that explains our origins, who we are, what our values are, what our beliefs are, and the ideals that shape our identity. The Bnei Barak Seder story is an accompaniment to that foundation narrative. It adds gravitas, weight meaning and substance to that foundation narrative. It is the cherry on the cake. By recalling it every year, the anniversary celebration, we seem to be saying, if the Exodus story was so important to these great sages that they spent all night talking about it, how much more important must it be for us, the ordinary folk? those not blessed with the knowledge of those sages, never having reached their elevated spiritual state. And it is the very first thing that we say at the Seder, after setting the tone with Manishtana and Avodim Hoyinu. Clearly, the Bnei Brak Seder story is extremely important. But let me back up for just a moment. Before we get stuck into the background and the personalities and the lessons to be learnt. Let's take a look at the facts as they are presented to us in the Haggadah. Maaseh b'Rabbi Eliezer, b'Rabbi Yehoshua, b'Rabbi Loza ben Azaria, b'Rabbi Akiva, b'Rabbi Tarfain shal yimusubin b'Vnei Barak, v'yimusaprim b'Yitzias Mitzrayim kol oisah halayla. Ad shebou tamidehem v'omru lahem, Rabbi Seinu, let me translate that for you. There's a story about Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Loza ben Azariah, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfain, who were reclining in Bnei Brak. They were telling the story of the exodus from Egypt all night long, until their students came in and said to them, Our rabbis, the time has come to say the morning Shema. It's a nice story, a lovely story, in fact. And the most simple explanation for its insertion into the Haggadah at this particular juncture is that we have just ended Avodim Oyinu by saying, Anyone who adds and spends extra time in telling the story of the Exodus from Egypt is worthy of praise. Which means, in essence... Don't be in a rush to get through the primary purpose of gathering together on the first night of Pesach, which is telling the story 
of the Exodus. Rather, make sure to go over every detail. And the longer you spend on it, all the better. And what better example could we have to follow than the five great sages of the Mishnah, who did exactly that? They sat around all night long and talked about Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim so much so that they didn't even realize that morning had arrived and it was time for them to say Shema. Their students had to interrupt them and tell them to say the Shema. As I said, that's the simple explanation. It's the one you will see in your Haggadahs and it's the one you will have learnt when you were kids. But, and you know, I was going to say but. This explanation is far from satisfactory because there are so many unanswered questions regarding the story that you get the feeling that there is much more to it than the rather shallow explanation you've just heard. Let me share a few of those questions with you. First, there's the most obvious one of all. Why were these five rabbis together on the first night of Pesach? Why weren't they at home with their families? They all lived in different places, as you're going to see. So why were they all together that year? And if you're thinking to yourself, OK, they weren't with their families. Do you know why? Because they were with their students. How lovely. They sacrificed their family time to be responsible educators. Well, that doesn't work either. Because their students were not at the Seder with them. Because they had to come in and interrupt them in the morning and tell them about the Shema. I don't know where the students had their Seder. But it obviously wasn't with the five rabbis. So why were the five rabbis away from their families? And why were they with each other? And here's another question. Why did the Seder happen in Bnei Brak? Of all places, we know that the Seder must have taken place after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, which means that the center of gravity for the rabbis of the Sanhedrin, and all of these rabbis were in the Sanhedrin, the center of gravity was in Yavne. So why were they in Bnei Brak? What is the significance of Bnei Brak? In fact, why mention Bnei Brak at all? Why not just say that the rabbis had gathered together for the Seder and not mention that it happened in Bnei Brak? What difference would it make to the story? And I have another question for you. How is it possible that these great rabbis, the greatest rabbis of their day, would be, could be, oblivious to their Kriya Shema obligation. These were individuals who not only were careful in every detail of Jewish law, they literally presided over those details. Are we ready to believe that these very same people would be so clumsy, so distracted, so lacking in mindfulness, that they would allow the mitzvah of Kriya Shema to slip their minds? Which triggers another question. It's this, that their students, is this what their students thought of them? How did they have the nerve to interrupt their rabbis in the midst of their discussions and reproach them for having missed the time for Shema? Who did they think they were? 
I mean, what a chutzpah, right? Now, here's a question from left field. There were five great rabbis there, all of them the premier rabbis of their day. But there was one rabbi notably missing from this gathering of notables. Rabon Gamliel. Where was Rabon Gamliel? He was the head of the Sanhedrin, the first among equals, the leading authority of his day, and yet he's not there. Was he not invited? Was he invited, but he didn't come? What is the explanation for his absence? And there's something even stranger. We have a story of another Seder, this one featuring Rabban Gamliel, and it sounds so similar to this story of the five sages, and yet it's not quite the same. The Rabban Gamliel Seder story is in Tesefta Psochim Perik Yud. Maser Barabon Gamliel Uzkenim, Shahimasubin Beves Betus Benzoinim Belud. Vahoyu Asukin Behilchus Hapesach Kola Laila Ad Kores Hageve. Hagbiu Milifneem Venoyadu Vaholchulahen Lebesa Medrash. Here's the translation. There was a story with Rabban Gamliel and the elders. They were reclining in the house of Betus Benzoinin in Lud. And they were discussing the laws of Pesach the whole night, all night long, until the rooster crowed. They lifted up what was on the table in front of them, and then they convened to the house of study to the Bes Medrash. By the way, even before we get into a discussion about the story of this rival all-night seder with Rabban Gamliel in the home of Betus Benzoinen in Lud, let me just tell you something important. This story is the only Talmud-era source narrative for an all-night Seder. The story of the five sages in Bnei Brak doesn't emerge in any shape or form until the appearance of the Siddur of Amram Goin, who lived in the ninth century, about four centuries after Talmud Bavli was completed, never mind the Mishnah or Tesefta, and about 700 years after Rabban Gamliel and the five sages lived and were active. Meanwhile, the story about Rabban Gamliel's Seder appears in the Tesefta, which was redacted and formally put together by Rabbi Chia Bar Abba in the 3rd century, only a century after the protagonists of the story lived and were active. It's strange, no? Anyway, the story of Rabban Gamliel's Seder itself is different in quite a few ways from the one in the Haggadah. Firstly, besides for the host, only Rabban Gamliel is mentioned he is the only rabbi of the story who is named. The other rabbis are simply referred to as the Zakenim, the elders. Who were they? Were any of the ones mentioned in our Haggadah story there? It's an interesting question, right? Secondly, the Rabban Gamliel Seder took place in Lud, not in Bnei Brak. Why? Thirdly, Rabban Gamliel and his colleagues didn't talk about Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Instead, they talked about the laws of Pesach, of Korban Pesach. What's that all about? And finally, it wasn't the students who interrupted them to say that it was morning, that it was time to end. Instead, it was the rooster crowing that, uh, that prompted them to end their Seder. So, the question really is this. Was this Seder the same Seder 
as the one in the Haggadah. And it's just that the details of who was there and what happened at the Seder got garbled and confused over the centuries until the time of Rav Ramam Goen. Or was it a totally different Seder? And if it was a totally different Seder, did the two Seders happen simultaneously in the same year, just in different locations? And if they did happen simultaneously in the same year, why was it that these distinguished rabbinic colleagues were separated from each other? What was going on? So many questions. And I'm not finished yet. In Sukkah, Davchov Zayin Amad Beis, Rabbi Eliezer says, which means, I have nothing but praise for lazy, indolent people. Do you know why? Because they don't leave their homes to go to Jerusalem for Yom Tov, fulfilling what it says in the Torah, you and your household shall rejoice. In other words, even though they're not doing it to follow the Torah's directive, because, let's face it, they are not, they are only not going to Jerusalem because they're lazy. Rabbi Eliezer still praised them because, in the final analysis, they were at home with their families, and that is what the Torah wants them and us to do. There's so many questions about that statement by Rabbi Eliezer, it makes your head spin. And I'm not going to deal with them all in this shear, but one question stands out for us right now. If Rabbi Eliezer was so against people leaving their homes and their families for Yom Tov, to the extent that he praises and blesses people for not leaving their homes and families, despite the fact that it's inertia, not altruism, that has led them to stay at home and not leave for Yom Tov, how exactly did he reconcile his own behavior with his statement? Here he is, sitting in B'nai Brak, with his mates, with his friends, having a lovely Seder, why was he not at home with his family? We know he wasn't a hypocrite or a flake, chas v'sholem. So we need an explanation, because surely this sounds like hypocrisy. Before we get to answer any of these questions, let them first percolate in your mind. Meanwhile, I want to share a question from the Chidah. The Chidah asks a great question. Why are the five sages, the five rabbis at the Bnei Brak Seder, each mentioned by name? The Haggadah could quite easily have said, Here's a story about some great rabbis who were reclining in Bnei Brak. Why do we need to know exactly who they were by name? The Chida answers brilliantly. The Yerushalmi in Soita tells us that Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkanus was a koyen. In we learn that Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah was a levi, and Rabbi Loza ben Azariah was a koyen, which is similarly noted in Baba Metzia daf Yudalef. In Psochim, daf Ayin Beis, we see that Rabbi Tarfain was also a koyen. So far, two levim, two koyenim. And in Sanhedrin Daf Tzadivov, we learn that Rabbi Akiva came from a family of converts, which is fascinating, because none of these categories of people were slaves in Egypt. The Leviim, and therefore Kohanim, were exempted from slavery by Pharaoh, 
and obviously converts are descended from Gentiles who were not part of the slavery in Egypt. So, one might have thought that Kohanim, Levim, and Gerim converts are not obligated in Sipu Yitzias Mitzrayim, or, at the very least, not to the same extent as those who are descended from those who really suffered in Egypt. Talmud Leimar, this story comes to teach us that Kohanim, Levim, and Gerim are also included in the obligation. And that is exactly what Rabbi Yezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Loz ben Azara, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Tarfoin wanted to teach us. Which is why Rabban Gamliel might not have been relevant to this story, because he was a Yisrael. He was descended from Hillel Hazokain, he was his great-grandson, and Hillel Hazokain was descended from David HaMelech, from King David. And by the way, I'm a Levi. So they were directing this lesson at me, and at all Levim and Kohenim and Gerim. Do you know why? Because we, all three categories, also benefited from the miracle of Yetzias Mitzrayim. As a result of Yetzias Mitzrayim, we all received the Torah. No one would have been standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and said, Na'asevanishma, if there wouldn't have been Yetzias Mitzrayim. And we are taught that even the souls of the converts were present at Mount Sinai when the Bnei Yisrael received the Torah. As it says, Those who are here and those who are not here. Which is the reason why Gerim are obligated to tell the story of Yetzias Mitzrayim as well. Why did these five great rabbis specifically choose Bnei Brak for their Seder? The great Hasidic master, the Aptorov, suggests that the deeper significance of this selection is as follows. Apparently, he says, the sages' designs for that night went well beyond what we would consider a standard Pesach Seder. They reflected carefully on the overall situation affecting Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people at that time, the Golas that we are still in now was just getting underway in those days, and the severity was increasing steadily. The prevailing fear was that due to what was going on at the time, the Jewish people would not be able to endure the painful reality of the prevailing circumstances. How would the Jewish people survive? There was no Beis Hamikdash. The might of the Roman Empire was focused on their destruction. The threat of sectarian Jewish groups such as the early Christians and others was dominating and undermining the Jewish faith. Things had never been so bad. It was precisely this crisis that these five holy rabbis needed to head off. And their idea was to do it by capitalizing on the opportunities provided by the lofty spiritual heights of the first night of Pesach and the bounty of divine emanation that opens up for everyone at this auspicious time. You see, Yetzias Mitzrayim is not simply a historical event when we mark the anniversary of our release from national slavery. It is so much more. Do you know why? 
because it entails a spiritual milestone and a transcendent transformation. At that moment in time, Hashem lifted up his people by infusing them with a powerful and radiant divine light in the face of which the impure forces of darkness were forced to retreat. And just as it occurred on the night of the Exodus over 33 centuries ago, it reoccurs every year at that exact moment. The five sages were acutely aware of the annual re-emergence of this divine light. And it is this exact point that is alluded to by the very name of the location they chose to have their Seder, B'nai Brak. The term Barak refers to a bolt of lightning, a brilliant flash of luminescence. The Tanoim, the rabbis in our story, they were concerned for the spiritual and physical well-being of Klal Yisrael. And their intention that night was to absorb the emanations of divine light and to channel and extend them so that these flashes of God's lightning would stretch over the whole Golos. That's why they engaged in Sippo Yitzias Mitzrayim all night long. That's why they were together that night. Although the word Sippo translates literally as retelling, it also conveys another Hebrew term, Sapir, which means a glittering, sparkling sapphire. Their program of Sippur, Sapir, Mesaprim, Bietzias Mitzrayim Koloisa Laila had the effect of illuminating the long dark night of Jewish exile. To this day, we benefit from the illumination of that Seder in Bnei Brak. We are only here because of that Seder. The Haggadah also tells us about the students' role in the events of that night. The rabbis were discussing Yetzias Mitzrayim all night long until their students came and said to them, Rabbi Seinu, our rabbis, the time has come to say Shema. The Aptorov explains that this piece of the story is a testimony to the success of what the five rabbis had been aiming to do. The Talmidim, the students, had remained outside during this historic Seder, waiting to see how it would turn out. As the night drew to a close, they detected something extraordinary. Even though they weren't at the level of their elevated mentors, they could feel a sudden influx of divine light and heavenly inspiration. Morning had arrived. It was no longer dark and gloomy. Rather, it was bright and hopeful. The night signifies Golus, exile. But dawn is a sign of the Geula, of redemption. And never was the dawn as bright and as hopeful as it was that providential morning in Bnei Brak. The hope of redemption is embodied by the dawn. Even the students could now detect that the Jewish people would last through the Golas, that they would endure, that they would withstand it all, and eventually they would be there to greet the dawn 
they would be there to greet Mashiach and the Geula Shalema. Rav Kook offers another rationale for why Bnei Brak is mentioned and why this extraordinary Seder was specifically held there. In his view, the land of Israel is the most conducive place for a Jew's, every Jew's, spiritual growth. And Bnei Brak is particularly significant in this context. The spiritual heights that were reached that special Seder night were influenced by the location of the Seder in the land of Israel and specifically in Bnei Brak. Rav Kook quotes the Gemara in Ksubus, Dav Kufyud Aleph Ahmed Beis, which describes how Rami Bar Yecheskel came to Bnei Brak, the same Bnei Brak, and he saw with his own eyes the fulfillment of what it says in the Torah, Eretz Zovas Cholav Udvash, that the land of Israel is a country that flows with milk and honey. As he stood in Bnei Brak, Rami Bar Yecheskel saw with his own eyes how honey from the dates flowed into the milk of the goats and the posuk in the Torah came to life right there in front of him. Bnei Brak represents the ultimate ideal of the beauty and the promise of what the Jewish people can find in the promised land. That was why this extraordinary Seder couldn't take place in Yavne or in Lud or anywhere else. It had to take place in Bnei Brak so that the full force of Eretz Yisrael's spiritual energy could be utilized for maximum effect. Rav Yosef Tzvi Riman, in his beautiful Haggadah commentary, also offers a wonderful explanation for why the Seder had to take place specifically in Bnei Brak. And he adapted his explanation, his interpretation, from the commentary of the Orach HaShulchan, Vichil Michal Halevi Epstein. After all, says Rav Riman, none of the five rabbis, besides for one of them, Rabbi Akiva, lived there, lived in Bnei Brak. So why was his home chosen above all the other choices? And in answering the question of Bnei Brak, Rav Rimon addresses a number of the other questions as well. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, Daflamad Beis Ahmed Beis, gives us a list of places where the Talmudic sages lived. Toner Abonam, our rabbis taught, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdoif, justice, justice shall you pursue. Do you know what this means? The Gemara asks. It means that you should pursue the great rabbinic scholars to their academies. Revelyezer to Lud, Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai to Berachayel, Rabbi Yeshua to Pekin, Rabban Gamliel to Yavne, and Rabbi Akiva to Benebrak. So we know that of the rabbis in our story, Rabbi Yezer lived in Lud, Rabbi Yeshua lived in Pekin. And Rabbi Akiva lived in Bnei Brak. Rabbi Lozab ben Azaria was the Nasi, the head of the Sanhedrin, so we know that at that time he must have lived in Yavne. And if he didn't live in Yavne, we know from a Tosefta in Kalim that he also lived in a place called Tsipiri. As to Rabbi Tarfain, according to the Gemara in Kedushin, Dafmem Omad Beis, he lived in Lud, near Rabbi Liezer. So why that year? Did all the five rabbis come to Bnei Brak? 
why didn't each one of them celebrate the festival where they lived? And we know from the Rambam's introduction to Perish Mishnais that Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua were Rabbi Akiva's Rabbeim. Wouldn't it be more logical for a student to come to the home of his rabbi and not the other way around? The key to the answer may well lie in a Mishnah in Perigudim Psochim, in which Rabbi Tarfain and Rabbi Akiva argue where the Birkas Hagu'ula should end at the end of Magid. Rabbi Tarfan used to say, Asher ga'olonu v'go'ales aviseinu mimitzrayim. He who redeemed us and redeemed our fathers from Egypt. But, says the Mishnah, lo'ihoya choysem. He did not conclude with a bracha. That's where he ended. That was it. Talking about the exodus from Egypt. But Rabbi Akiva said much more. He said, Kein Hashem aleikeinu v'lekeaviseinu. Yagieinu lemoyadim v'lirgolim acherim. Haboim likrosenu l'sholoim, semechim bevinyan yirecha, v'sosim b'avoidosecha, v'noichal shom min azvochim u'min apsochim. And then he ended with a bracha baruch, Ato Hashem gal Yisrael. It means as follows, So may Hashem our God and the God of our fathers enable us to reach other seasons and festivals in peace, rejoicing in the building of your city and joyful in your service. And there we will partake of the sacrifices and the Pesach offerings. Ending with a blessing to close it all off, Baruch Hashem, who has redeemed Yisrael. Gal Yisrael. In the opinion of Rabbi Tarfain, the blessing of redemption that we make on the Seder night should only relate to the redemption from Egypt. But Rabbi Akiva disagrees. In his opinion, the blessing we make at the end of Magid is not just about the past. It also addresses, it also foretells, it also anticipates the future redemption. We are expressing our hope to rejoice when Jerusalem is rebuilt and the Beis HaMikdosh service is renewed. This is totally typical of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva always radiated optimism, even in the most challenging times. In another famous story, the one in Masechus Makkas, Davchof Dalad Omid Beis. Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues were walking on or near Temple Mount, and they saw a jackal emerging from where the holiest site of the destroyed temple had once stood. The rabbis all began to cry, except for Rabbi Akiva. Instead of crying, Rabbi Akiva laughed. Why are you laughing? they asked him. Why am I laughing? he replied. That's not the right question. The right question is, why are you crying? Because now that Uriah's prophecy has been fulfilled, that the holy site of Zion will be ploughed like a field, I am sure that Zechariah's prophecy that old men and old women will sit and rejoice on the streets of Jerusalem will also be fulfilled. The Gemara in Makkah concludes by telling us, that they, his friends, his colleagues, said to Rabbi Akiva, Akiva Nichamtonu, Akiva Nichamtonu, Akiva, you have consoled us, Akiva, you have consoled us. Rabbi Akiva had an extraordinary power. In fact, it was a superpower. He knew how to cheer people up and put them in good spirits, even when they were in the midst of a crisis. 
he could always paint a picture of hope and optimism. For Rabbi Akiva, disaster was simply a prelude to triumph. Good times will always follow bad times. Every valley is the beginning of a journey to the top of the highest mountain. The temple may be destroyed, but in his mind's eye, Rabbi Akiva could see Jerusalem in all its glory as it would one day be again. He didn't see desolation, he saw jubilation. He didn't see destruction, he saw reconstruction. He didn't see the misery of exile, he saw the triumph of redemption. And the same is true of the Mishnah Psochim. Rabbi Akiva understood that even when we are in exile, we must always talk about the joy of redemption and of the rebuilt Beis Hamikdash, even when the subject of the moment is Yetzias Mitzrayim. The story of the Seid and Benebrak took place in a generation when the Romans were persecuting the Jews. It was a generation where those who studied Torah were punished. The nation was broken. The circumstances in which they had to live were unbearable. And the rabbis who led them were at the end of their strength. They were drowning in the pain of their generation. And so, for the Seder night, the night when we are charged with celebrating freedom, a group of the generation's most senior leaders decided to come to the one rabbi who would offer them encouragement and strengthen their resolve. The one rabbi who always saw suffering as the run-up to redemption. That is why they all came to Rabbi Akiva in Bnei Brak. What did the sages do at that seder? And why did Rabbi Yeza and Rabbi Yeshua, both Rabbi Akiva's teachers, come to him rather than he come to them? And there is the puzzling hypocrisy of Rabbi Yeza, who said, who praised lazy people who never leave their homes for the pilgrimage festivals. If that's what he thought, why did he leave his home? And then there's the question of the missing giant, Rabban Gamliel, the Nossi of the Sanhedrin. Where was he? Why was he not there with his colleagues? Perhaps this was more than a Seder. Perhaps until Chatzois, until midnight, the five rabbis spoke about Yetzias Mitzrayim, as is the obligation. And then, from Chatzois, they spoke about Lashon Haba Yerushalayim. They spoke about the Geula, the redemption. Possibly it was purely religious, or it might even have been practical. And maybe Rabban Gamliel was absent so as not to draw attention to the secret meeting that was taking place. He was high profile, the head of the Sanhedrin, probably had a secret service escort and a big entourage. So he kept away. His Seder that same year was him and a bunch of no-name rabbis at the house of the high-profile tycoon Beitus Benzonin in Lud. That's why the Romans, that's where the Romans sent their spies. But the whole night went by and nothing happened because the real action was in Bnei Brak, in a small room in Rabbi Akiva's house. There they would conduct the Seder night without the intrusion and the danger of Roman spies. There they could discuss the exodus of history and there they could discuss the redemption that lay ahead. Rav Avigda Amiel, in his Sefer Drosha Salami, takes the details of the Bnei Brak Seder story 
to the next level. Sometimes, he says, the experiences and lifelong challenges of the older generation can make it difficult for them to see any light at the end of the tunnel. It is always night. It is always dark. And the darkness seems to stretch on and on and on. As hard as they try to discuss Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, all they can see is Kal Oysa Halayla. They may be talking about redemption, but all around them is darkness and misery. Oysa Halayla. For all the upbeat discussion, the night, the Layla, is still dark, and the chance of any light seems like a fantasy. What they all needed, these five elderly rabbis, even Rabbi Akiva, was an injection of youthful enthusiasm for the promise of good times ahead. At dawn, it is still dark, and it can be hard to tell the difference between night and dawn. But for the Talmidim, for the students, even if it was dark, Higia, Zman, Kriya Shema Shel Shachris, enough with talking about Yetzirah Mitzrayim. Stop dwelling on the glories of the past. It's time for the light to break through and to think about the sun shining like never before. Here we are, young and able, ready for the full light of the day. Yes, it may only be dawn, and there's barely, barely any light on the horizon, but very soon the sun will rise, and then everything will, be, will light up for us and for the future going forward. In fact, Rav Amiel suggests that this Seyd and Benebrak may have been the genesis of the Bar Kokhba revolt. Rabbi Akiva followed in the footsteps, footsteps of his students, Rav Amiel says, and then all the elders of the generation followed, and they helped Bar Kokhba with their great influence on the people, and their success illuminated the face of the oppressed Jewish people, and it seemed that the Roman Empire was thrown into disarray as a result of these brave men of Israel. The mighty Romans, who were stationed in the cities of Judea, fled for their lives, and the Jews became sole rulers over the land. Now, I don't know if Rav Amiel's suggestion is correct or not, but it is certainly, certainly noteworthy. If he is correct, that Rav Gamliel was not there in Bnei Brak at that Seder. It, it, it makes sense that he wasn't there, as he was no longer alive by that time, as he died over a decade before the Bar Kokhba revolt. Another reason why Rabban Gamliel may not have been there at that Seder in Bnei Brak is because there was a fundamental disagreement between Rabban Gamliel and his eminent colleagues about the duties and obligations of Seder night. According to Rabban Gamliel, any person who doesn't mention and discuss the reasons for Pesach, Matzah, and Moror at, at the Seder has not discharged their duty. The implication of that rule is this. As long as you talk about every aspect of those three things, you don't have to tell the story of Yotias Mitzrayim. And isn't it interesting that in the story of Rabban Gamliel Seder in Lud, brought in the Tosefta, there is no mention of any discussion of Yotias Mitzrayim, they were engaged in a discussion about the laws of the Pesach offering all night long. I'm thinking that perhaps there were two opposing factions. 
There was Rabban Gamliel and the Zakenim, who believed that if you're going to talk about anything at length at Seder night, it needed to be Hilchas Korban Pesach. Meanwhile, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Loza ben Azariah, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Tarfain disagreed with Rabban Gamliel. In their opinion, we need to talk about the backdrop to Korban Pesach. Otherwise, what's the point? We need to talk about the slavery. And then talk about the redemption. Of course, as part of that, we can talk about Korban Pesach. But the obscure technical details of the ritual laws of a temple sacrifice are not an appropriate topic for the discussion at Seder night, where most of the people there are not rabbis and legal experts. The example set by these five rabbis was that even the greatest rabbis of all must talk about the story, not the laws. Afilu kulonu chachomim, kulonu nevoinim, kulonu zekenim, kulonu yoidim esatora, mitzvah aleinu lesaper b'yetzias mitzrayim, v'cholamar belesaper b'yetzias mitzrayim, and on reflection, that remains the most powerful lesson of all from this story. Notwithstanding the historical details of the unusual Seder in Bnei Brak, who attended and who didn't attend, why it happened in Bnei Brak and not somewhere else, why the students were not included, when exactly it happened, what stands out is the stature of these great rabbis and the fact that they devoted an entire night to discussing a story they probably knew intimately well. Maybe that's why this story appears right at the beginning of the Haggadah, long before the mention of Rabban Gamliel, which comes right at the end, while Rabban Gamliel's story, the one from Tesefta, is not mentioned at all in the Haggadah. And with that, I think I have answered, or at least addressed, every question raised by the iconic story of the Rabbi Seder in Bnei Brak that we say every year at our Seder. And hopefully this year, having heard everything there is to know about it, your appreciation for this story and what it represents will be enhanced and will enhance your Seder experience. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you for listening and wishing you a Chag Kosher Good Yom Tov, good Yom Tov.